uh, hang on, let me clean my glasses. So I think from memory, we did the whole introduction. Mm -hmm. You may have even said welcome. Um, well, if I have, we can edit it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you don't want to talk about the Ubuntu battle book, right? We don't have enough time. I don't think we'll have enough time, but uh, at the end or at the beginning, uh, in the beginning you mentioned that, because when you read the CV you say um, coming in September mm -hmm. or something. So that is mentioned in the, in the intro. So okay. you don't need to worry too much about not mentioning that. Uh, okay, I think we're ready. Okay, welcome, Peter. Thanks, Peter. It certainly feels different to be facing the editor for a change. Let the Inquisition begin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, book that has just come out that you'll be launching at uh, Empilueni uh, in Sophia Town and also at the Fahriberg Society and the Cape Town Book Fair in just a, a few weeks. Yes, Peter, it's uh, in some ways the first compilation uh, of a major uh, African uh, social reformer and politician of this uh, period of the mid-20th century. The ANC centenary frames the book in one sense. I mean, June this year has been chosen to, quote, pay tribute to Alfred Bettini Kuma as President General of the ANC from 1940 to 49. And uh, the ANC and I guess large sections of the community will be celebrating this, particularly in Gauteng, under the theme of the doors of learning and culture shall be opened. So if you like, that's the uh, formal or official framing around his life. And as you say, we will be launching it, uh, first of all, on June the 11th in his old residence in Toby Street in Sophia Town. Um, we might talk uh, later about the Sophia Town dimension. And we also have the wonderful biography by Stephen Gish, the American historian. And the good news is that this uh, is soon to be republished in South Africa by South African History Online. Um, uh, and uh, I should add that a good number of our listeners, I'm sure, are in South Africa or the US. And there's a double significance brought out very nicely in the subtitle of Steve Gish's biography, namely African, American, South African though I might uh, rearrange that word order. And I think getting uh, the doctor's works out to a wider public is long overdue, due in large part to 300 years of domination and, and apartheid. And there's long been um, sort of historical condescension towards black authors. And I'm just a small part of a larger trend in, in correcting this. Now tell us a little bit about uh, Dr. Kuma's historical role, his significance? Well, perhaps just before I do that, something on the actual book itself and its content, uh, it brings together for the first time his unpublished autobiography, uh, although parts of this were published in the 1950s in the famous Drum magazine, 
uh, as well as a selection of his prodigious output of... Uh stop, 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 stop. Can you stop? When you stopped here, I thought you were done. I thought you were going to go into the aims and the contents of the book. You want me to ask you questions? Are, th are those my cues for no, you? No, but you asked me about his significance. So yeah, but when you stopped, you looked at me at the end of the framing as if you were done talking. I was waiting for you to go into aims and contents. Do you want me to cue you on those? or do you? Because you seem like you're... Well, I was I'm only sensitive of the need for different voices at times. So, I so, don't, so communicate with me what you want me to okay. do. I'm here to... I to thought you might have then said, well, what about the aims of the book? Okay, but so that's what yeah. I'm getting at. Is mm. that how we want to proceed? Uh, if we want more uh, multiple voices, which I think can be nice for the listeners, they get a variation. Um, so maybe you can gesture that, you know, to as so as to cue me um, into the, 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 the conversation because you're, you're, you're in the flow and you're going and I don't want to stop you. I don't want to intervene and, and block you. Okay, so we've got the recording up to when we stopped it, which was, uh, why don't we it's just the framing continue. framing of the book, yeah. I'll, I'll just continue, but... So and I'll say, so Peter, mm. what, are, what are the aims? Tell us a little bit about what's in the book and what, what is... Or if you, you talk about the aims already? No, I was about uh, to, uh, but what I can okay. do is, uh, if we can just scratch your, uh, your question there, and I can just now continue as to the book's aims and its content and quickly go through that, and then Fine. you can... Yeah, why so don't you do that? And the book aims uh, really to open up more research on a range of issues such as his life and times, related themes of medical, social and ANC history, uh, the history of African women in politics, intellectual history and social biography. And on a different tack, it also hopes to facilitate textual analysis in South African historiography and draw attention to the need to develop the study of the genre uh, of the works, or oeuvre, as the French would say, of black authors, and I'll come back to that later. And finally, uh, I'm very glad that it brings the richness of ANC history and black political history into the corpus of the Van Riebeck series. As to the actual content of the book, it brings together uh, his previously unpublished autobiography uh, with a selection of his prodigious output of uh, letters, speeches, and eulogies, pamphlets, and submissions to commissions. And the subjects range quite widely across politics, health, the past laws, gender, good old beer, uh, taxation, housing, education, crime, unions, uh, life in Alexandra, even international relations and the onset of apartheid. Um, so here there's a balance of themes and the, the medical dimension in particular has been neglected, but it does help widen appreciation of the, his life and it answers some questions about his motives for entering politics. In an obituary, uh, fellow doctor and fellow actis, activist uh, Yusuf Dadu wrote, quote, he lived up to the best traditions of the medical profession and served his people well. His contact in his daily practice with the unfortunate inhabitants of slums and hovels in the industrial areas of Johannesburg threw him into the thick of politics. So tell us a little bit about uh, Puma's historical significance, uh, briefly. Yeah, he's, he's usually best known as the leader who revived the ANC in the 1940s, but was then defeated in 49 by the rising Young Turks of the Youth League, led by Nelson Mandela and Walter Sisulu. He's certainly an enigma as a political leader. Having laid the foundations of a stronger organization, he then balks uh, and fails to take the necessary uh, next step. 
as Heidi Holland puts it, he neglected to apply political pressure. And historians usually emphasize this. And Mandela's own rather tough portrait of Homer uh, is often of a paternalist opposed to direct action, always acknowledging his tremendous work for the ANC, but uh, ruining his air of superciliousness, claiming his medical practice always took precedence. So, as I say, less known is his important career as a medical doctor, but also as a social reformer. And to my mind, the continuity of his thought over decades of writing and speeches in which he articulates a consistent critique of white domination, inequality, segregation, then apartheid, and his ongoing concerns, interestingly, with national liberation, health, and black identity, uh, lend his works a curious resonance with many of today's burning issues. A and there's so, I'd say there's a certain ambiguity about his historical role or significance, and it's well captured by other contemporaries. Uh, to Walter Susulu, he, um, quote, brought an end to factions. He really should take credit for modernizing the ANC. And this sort of appreciation also came from Oliver Tambo. They were of similar reserved nature. And they had some synergy, I think. And Tambo and Mandela may even have helped write his speeches, according to an interview that Tambo gave in 1991. And there are similar sorts of balancing assessments of his career by people like Albert Latuli and and others. Latuli said that, uh, you know, under his leadership, Congress at last got down to the task of equipping itself for the fray. But on the other hand, by the time that Milan came, comes to power in 1948, um, Congress was urgent. Uma was cautious. So there's that sort of contrast. Um, and yet, as I try and bring out in selections from his correspondence and speeches, uh, although he's usually characterized as this very cautious, uninspiring speaker, his carefully reasoned oratory and, uh, and his writings nevertheless could still be persuasive and indicate indicative of a human touch, sometimes denied. For instance, Jordan and Gabani, uh, one of the founders of the Youth League, considered his address at the wake in honor of Youth League founder Anton Lamberti the most moving of the day. In fact, Irma broke down in tears at the at the uh, significance of the event. So at times, the sources I reproduce can reveal this warmer, lighter side, perhaps even slightly more militant than remembered. Um, he was also a precursor, I think, to black consciousness and able to unite different factions, elders and youth, indigenous rulers, uh, communists, Indian South Africans. Uh, he was a great supporter of black unions, a champion of solidarity with Namibians and of the rights of, of African women. But still, he was a product of his, of his time. Um, he was the last ANC leader to privilege the old politics of deputations, yet he was also a, a leader of a new kind, a, a modernizer. Uh, so his ability to start building a better machine and his triumph over wayward branches and his ability to juggle and unite left and right, I think, were all his landmark hallmarks. Now, of course, you led a fascinating life. You mentioned Stephen Gish's uh, biography that came out in 2000 or so, and soon to be available uh, open access, I imagine, if it's on South African history online. So we look forward to that. But uh, uh, are there particular aspects of his life uh, that you m focused on in collecting these documents? And uh, what did some of these documents reveal, perhaps, that we didn't know before? Well, we've actually reproduced three of his autobiographical works. His main 
uh, unpublished autobiography um, was written in about 1950, and it was the part of that was serialized in um, in Drum magazine. But we've also flanked it with some even earlier writings, including a 1930 um, uh, account of his life history. Uh, a lot of this is well known through Steve Gish's uh, uh, through Steve Gish's wonderful work. I think I would point to uh, several key influences, which, which others have also pointed to. Um, uh, first, he was, like Mandela, uh, a son of the Eastern Cape. Uh, he was born in the Transkei in 1893 to Wesleyan converts, neither of whom had received formal uh, Western schooling. And so African rural culture and, and mission education were formative influences. Uh, you'd be familiar with the similarity of uh, Mandela talking about stick fighting, for instance. Uh, so that's also there. But so too were rumours uh, of new worlds in his early life. And an excellent student, he qualified as a teacher from Clarkbury Institute, where Mandela also studied. And there he helped organise a student protest against inequality. And then after a short period of teaching, he came to the US where he's a stay of 13 years brought not only a quality education, but these very important, I think, new influences of black acerbiness from uh, African-American friends and uh, organizations, um, liberalism, and particularly he was quite impressed by the generosity of white liberals he met in the United States who helped him out. And I think this carries over into his career, his uh, willingness to at least uh, discuss matters with white liberals. And, and, and thirdly, the scientific method. So after re receiving his MD from Northwestern University in 1926, he augments this with qualifications in obstetrics and gynecology and surgery at the famous Mayo Clinic in the US and then on to Hungary and Scotland before coming home in 1927. And um, uh, so some of this uh, is well known, but Richard Ralston um, has been working for a long time on the medical aspects of Homer, and uh, I'm, I'm able by reproducing these different autobiographical fragments to bring out a little bit more, although we might turn later when we look at the actual writings about some of the silences even in these. Um, so again, coming back to his life, he's unlike um, rural-based colleagues, and he joins a mere handful of black physicians. It was a great indictment of white South African society that uh, young black medical students had to go overseas uh, to get uh, qualifications. And so unlike his rural-based colleagues, who are only a few, and in the face of disapproval of white liberals, he, he sets up practice in, in, in Johannesburg, and he settles into a comfortable house in Toby Street, uh, Sophia Town that would remain his home until he's finally um, uh, driven by forced removals to Soweto in 1959. But uh, what has also perhaps been neglected in assessments of Homer, because as I mentioned earlier, people tend to focus on his ANC years, was his role in the 1930s when he stood out as a brilliant uh, young social reformist. And by the end of the 30s, the ANC Secretary General James Lata saw him as the one to lead. And the next decade is his. You know, he takes the Fisiparous ANC provinces firmly yet comradely by the scruff of the neck, maybe like a lion with cubs, and he sort of molds them into a much more efficient body. And here I think the interesting thing to ponder is 
whether anyone could have done much more at the time. He's often criticised heavily for being so moderate, and yet when you realise how divided the ANC provinces were at the time, um, and the, the need to sort of link up with quite moderate, even conservative people like George Champion in Natal, one wonders how a more militant leader could have could have kept it all together. So ironically, he helped spark, I think, the very forces that ch that forces for change in the youth league that would then unseat him. Um, we have reproduced some of the documents, including uh, what is in most likelihood his address to this uh, an inaugural meeting of the youth league. Um, but he's unable really to support uh, the more radical program of action of 1949. He resigns and thereafter plays no major role uh, in politics. But he's still there behind the scenes. He warns against apartheid. He tries to organize fellow ratepayers against forced removals. But then in the mid-50s, uh, his public criticism of the ANC and then the defiance campaigns brings alienation from that organization. It sort of takes the gloss of his earlier organisational wizardry. And yet when uh, Doug Hammarskjöld makes his controversial visit to South Africa in 1960, he tells the UN chief, well, you really need to speak to the people's voice, the ANC. So he's not entirely disconnected. He does speak to the, some of the PAC um, uh, leaders also in this time. And finally he dies in January 1962 in Soweto, where as I said earlier, he'd been forced to relocate. I was discussing with my students just the other day Nelson Mandela's self-presentation in his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, and I was struck reading your book uh, just recently um, that in his own autobiography, uh, Thuma uh, has a very self-conscious presentation that is quite Mandela-esque, if you will. Um, can you talk a little bit about how he sees himself, perhaps, uh, in, this, in this autobiography? He seems to spend a lot of time telling us exactly who he met and where, spends a lot of time describing places like Budapest uh, or um, uh, Chicago um, and uh, even Milwaukee. He was at Marquette for a time, right? Uh, so he's, he seems to be very much trying to project the image of a cosmopolitan. And of mm. course, the scientific congresses and, and, and so on and so forth. But he's also very much, Im uh, of course, imbibing in Booker T. Washington's uh, ideas, which actually echo with Steve Biko's ideas of the 70s on, on black self-reliance. There's a wonderful statement that you reproduced on, on, on page 48, where really it comes out in, in, in a very evocative way. Um, he says, we must develop self-reliance, have faith in ourselves and our own leadership, and we shall be on the way to well-earned freedom. Um, so what about his self-presentation in this particular autobiography? Yes, great questions and uh, raising a number of very interesting questions that hopefully scholars can now start to tackle because we have a, a, a deeper archive, a deeper oeuvre, and uh, that's uh, something very much in favour of developing this more broadly. And one could uh, wonder whether Mandela himself did not probably uh, read uh, this published version in Drum in the 50s. Uh, certainly Mandela himself was being photographed in his boxing mm. gloves, uh, the handsome young man in his boxing gloves in Drum. Uh, and so it's quite likely there may have been a sort of subliminal or memory thing involved there. Um, you also mentioned page 48, and ironically, 
in the manuscript version at Witt's historical papers, uh, the autobiography ends abruptly in mid-sentence on page 48. And so there's a host of textual questions here about um, maybe uh, multiple versions and maybe uh, multiple authors even. Um, I'd say that it's one of the most revealing accounts by an African leader of the day and we could compare it profitably with say uh, Albert Latouli's Let My People Go and Richard Victor Selopetema's unpublished autobiography. And uh, so both of the drum and the manuscript versions cover up to the early 40s only. So there's a very interesting question here. Why, for instance, he, uh, he doesn't continue and say more about the important World War II period, uh, the, the problem with the Youth League that he saw, um, and, and various other issues. And in some places, these two versions are identical, but in other cases, there's some quite important small variations. And Steve Gish, for instance, says, looking back at this autobiography, he says, as valuable a source as, as the recollections are, uh, they leave many questions unanswered. So um, why give so much space? For instance, you, you mentioned Budapest, and it's a love, charming city. I've been there. And, um, but why give so much space? space also to uh, a meeting with a, a rather obscure Japanese traveller. Um, and uh, why does he say so little of his medical practice? Perhaps he had his eye in some cases on unity and risk of censorship at this time. Remember we're just two years into apartheid. Things are getting pretty grim. Left, right and centre there's very repressive laws uh, being passed and so this risk of censorship or may account for lack of comment on apartheid, but how to explain, say, drum omissions, such as uh, one that I'd like to draw attention to, and that's an important section in the manuscript detailing meetings with Clara Bridgman on the rejection of his earlier nomination to head the first African maternity hospital in, in Joburg. Was it lack of space or perhaps a desire not to antagonize white donors? And so uh, hopefully, um, Further research may bring out more of the body here. So I think these are some of the things we can explore. In fact, that section uh, about the Bridgman Hospital's opening and, and also the attempt by the McCord Hospital in Durban to attract uh, Tuma uh, to its staff uh, really reads almost like a um, social history of uh, uh, black health, in a sense, in South Africa. I mean, these are the big names, of course, of. Uh, the 1920s and 1930s in particular, and then he becomes the, the medical officer of health in Alexandra. Uh, so uh, very, very interesting material. And also there's, there's some fascinating documents later in the book when, when you deal with the correspondence and speeches and uh, essays where he shares his attitude towards indigenous healers and traditional medicine. Can you uh, give us a glimpse of how Dr. Kluma, who's been trained in Western biomedicine, uh, felt about uh, uh, local, quote-unquote, traditional doctors and, and those practices and beliefs that still today are quite common in South Africa. Yes, I think it's an important uh, part of the book and a very important part of his life. And in this regard, I'm situating my work in a, in a burgeoning literature on social history of health in South Africa by people like Shula Marx and Kathy Burns, more recently Vanessa Noble, Howard Phillips and uh, 
Elizabeth Van Hanigan, my editors at the Van Rubeck Society, have all written widely uh, more recently um, highlighting the, the history of black doctors. And uh, uh, before 1910, there were only three black doctors in the entire Cape. So by the time that Alma bursts on the scene two decades later, uh, he wasn't entirely alone, but he was very much um, pushing for a more socially responsive health system. And I think perhaps the eventual failure of those initiatives um, must have helped push him into politics. But this contrast you mentioned between Western and indigenous African concepts towards uh, health and healing are, are quite fascinating. There's a, an article we reproduced called The African Concept of Disease. And in this he compares and contrasts Western and African um, uh, traditional medicine. And he comes down strongly in favor of the scientific approach, but he always takes time to explain to his readers, to non-African audiences, the significance of medical aspects of African cultures. In this particular piece, he talks a lot about Swana culture and Swana words, and talks about lightning and uh, uh, magic and all kinds of very interesting um, uh, beliefs. And the feedback from the uh, all-white audience of scientists and engineers in Johannesburg and miners is really quite interesting. They're quite fascinating. But uh, very strongly his belief in science comes out across these works. And, and that's often closely connected to his very strong opposition to what he saw as half-baked schemes of African medical aids as opposed to full medical training. So he saw this as a cop-out and he saw attempts to lure him away to the rural areas or perhaps even to Durban as a, a way to try and move him away from where his work was really needed on the Rand, which was becoming the centre uh, of the economy. Uh, African urbanisation was really going ahead. And um, he also has a deep concern uh, uh, for social medicine, which is apparent in both his medical and political writing. So we shouldn't perhaps uh, disaggregate these. So often in his speeches or submissions to many government commissions that he uh, addressed, uh, they're peppered with references to the fact that, quote, disease has no colour bar and to unhealthy, quote, factories of crime. Again and again, he, 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 he uses these metaphors and he adduces copious lists of statistics about health, uh, infant mortality, crime, different diseases like tuberculosis to paint a very vivid picture uh, to his white interlocutors of, of, of uh, declining black health in places like Alexandra. Um, it's quite a stark contrast to this image that is sometimes presented of Kuma as aloof. Yes. Right? I mean, uh, there's uh, one report that you include in the book, uh, the annual report of the Medical Officer of Health from Alexandria, that is absolutely meticulous and exhaustive and clearly shows tremendous sensitivity to the, the social and economic origins of, um, of uh, disease in, the, in this particular township. Right, so uh, that's one source, I think, of his deep empathy uh, with uh, black South Africans. Um, and I think this partly explains maybe his sympathy for trade unions and black trade unions in particular. Uh, and the ANC at the time has often been painted as an organization that stood 
uh, yes, occasionally side by side with trade unions, but often uh, uh, stood in contrast to them. Uh, where do you think also this um, sympathy for trade unions came from in, in Fuma? Did it have to do with the fact that, for example, when he was a student in the United States, he took all sorts of different jobs? He even worked as a, as a waiter on the North Pacific Railway one summer to make money because he was always uh, really struggling very, very hard to make ends meet. Uh, what's your sense? Yes, you can see this in his autobiography where he, he uses some rich metaphors of ramming steel pipes and things like this. And uh, uh, dozens of uh, hard uh, manual labor jobs as a student. He was very poor. He's not coming from an aristocratic family. He, he has to rely on the, the, the support of white liberals and he has to go out and work. And he's often not very well as a result. He's very diminutive in size. I think the, the linkage and his attitude to uh, labor, and I've covered this whole question of the relationship of labor and the early ANC in an earlier book, uh, is complex. In, on an ideological or intellectual level, it's interesting that he cites G.D.H. Cole quite a lot. Cole was a historian of British, uh, the British Labor Party and social democracy. And certainly uh, writing in the 1930s, he would have been well aware of the effects of the Great Depression in the US uh, and the sort of social democratic attempts by the Roosevelt administration to overcome it. And uh, certainly, although it hit later, it hit hard in South Africa and it hit hardest on black workers. And all around him, in uh, not just uh, when he was uh, working in uh, Alexandra, but in Sophia Town, we might talk about Sophia Town in a minute, he's certainly uh, uh, sort of rubbing shoulders in social occasions with, 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 with working class people. Uh, I wonder if he really had much time. Medical doctors are often very busy people, especially if they're on call. And uh, it's too much of a stretch to imagine that he was out, say, like uh, Trevor Huddleston roaming the dusty streets of Sophia Town with urchins, as, as Desmond Tutu describes uh, Trevor's life in some ways. But I think there was also an organisational nexus here. The ANC, from its earlier years, had tried to link up with black trade unions, which were largely non-existent, and sort of they became a... Uh, sort of de facto uh, mouthpiece in many ways of black workers because uh, black trade unions in the first few decades of the centuries couldn't get any traction or legality. So in that regard, I think he was part of an ongoing historical tradition um, that flowed from the nature of segregation and a sort of colonial-like society. But it's certainly interesting. He, he's not afraid of working with the Communist Party and the left-wing trade unionists. Um, he's not afraid of working with the Indian uh, uh, Congresses either, but he particularly likes working with people like Moses Katani and J.B. Marx, who give priority as black communists to their role in the ANC. So I think as long as he could be assured of their uh, loyalty, and at times in some of his speeches to trade union gatherings, he's very critical of... Um, um, radical left-wingers and divisions in the labor movement. So I think he probably saw himself in a, in a broad sort of moderate social democratic mold. And you mentioned earlier something else that I found quite striking in this uh, new book of yours, uh, and that is his relationship with um, black uh, women's movements and organizations. And there's some wonderful extracts um, in the latter part of the book of uh, 
for example, letters by Mina Soga of mm. the National Council of African Women to him in, in the early 1940s, and also his wonderful sketch of uh, Charlotte Matayege dating back to 1930. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what seem to be quite progressive views on gender relations, uh, for instance, uh, that uh, the good doctor had. Yeah, women are largely excluded from this early part of ANC history writing, and the sources are very limited, and formal female membership really has to await his, his leadership. And so there is, of course, some substance to claims by historians like Natasha Erlank of a persistent patriarchy, yet his, view, his specific views on gender and women are little known. So his ANC reforms, his constitutional reforms include equality, women that certainly mark him as ahead of his time. Uh, there's evidence of his public and private support for women's greater role. Uh, for instance, his 1942 ANC presidential address and also I think his private letters to other ANC leaders who may have been much more patriarchal. I think that's a, a way to look at it, such as George Champion, to whom he urged, quote, without the women we cannot go far. Um, one could ask, though, whether this support for women um, and for youth or for labour, which you mentioned earlier, um, was it rather measured and ultimately rooted in a desire for greater ANC potency? So he certainly saw a need for a, a strong women's organisation, uh, as he said, through which we may speak. Now, the we there is, is interesting. And so he tasked his second wife, um, his first wife was from Liberia and she died in childbirth, but his second wife was the African-American and feminist Maddie Hall, uh, who Iris uh, Berger's been writing about. He tasked her with heading a revived women's league and I think she undoubtedly played a part in and influenced some of these moves. Um, whether the two of them, whether the couple were really the drivers of this change is an interesting question because certainly there were women. You mentioned Mina Soga, there was Lillian Shabalala in, in Johannesburg, uh, there were women in the Cape active in the 1920s. So I think he's able to pull these things back together and perhaps his time in the United States where he saw progressive African-American women in motion inspired him. And that comes back to his uh, biography of Charlotte, which was published by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so I think there is a web of connections there, a web of connections with unions, with churches, with, um, with African-Americans, with labor, with women. And his job, you know, is as a little general, he's sort of trying to pull these things together. Um, so I think more work needs to be done on this whole question of, of gendering the early ANC. Raymond Sutner, uh, Nombanisa Gaza and others have started to look at this. We need a lot more work on the vernacular columns of the black press uh, to get more of these African voices out. But yes, certainly we have, I have, when I, when I um, first proposed this volume to the Van Riebeck Society, uh, I tried to highlight gender issues as something that had been greatly neglected. That's great. And perhaps uh, as a way to uh, start bringing it uh, to a close, this, this conversation about the uh, uh, Edith Fuma and, and, and the new papers and documents that you've collected, we can uh, go to the western areas of Johannesburg, where Sophia Town once stood. And in 1952, uh, Dr. Fuma uh, 
authored a memorandum to the white authorities uh, that really makes for incredible reading. And he closes this uh, particularly hard-hitting memo in which he's opposing the forced removal of this uh, African, but not exclusively African, uh, black community by saying that forced removals are unnecessary, and I'm quoting, undemocratic, unchristian, and disregarding human dignity. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, part of his life. Yeah, the Sophia Town dimension is fascinating, and um, in in that passage that you cite, he eventually says, "Why do you white guys come here? Well, if you do come here and kick us all out, you're going to find that we've really developed the place. We've put down sewage, we've paved the streets, we've macadamized the streets, we've got schools, and so uh, sort of the the tragedy of Sophia Town is sort of encapsulated in the renaming of the place uh, temporarily as Triumph." Um, it's intriguing that the number of his uh, house seems to have changed from 73 to from 85 to 73, and that's something that I want to look into. But certainly, um, I mentioned earlier Trevor Huddleston. Um, so he, uh, uh, Father Huddleston, comes to Sophia Town from England and makes friend with the good doctor, and as Desmond Tutu recalls. Uh, uh, Trevor, if he wore a white cassock, that's the, the dress that the, uh, the, the priests wear, then this white cassock didn't remain clean for long as he trudged the dusty streets of Sophia Town. Now, uh, Alfred Bettini would more likely have been in his car on his way to clinic or to give evidence to some um, uh, government commission than trudging the dusty streets, yet there's a kindred spirit here which sort of captures the spirit, if you like, of Sophia Town. Both were absolutely opposed to racism, uh, willing to take on segregation and devote their lives to that end. And I think they're also part of this more vibrant community, this multiracial community of, of Sophia Town. And it's great that we're launching the book in his house in Sophia Town, which has now been renamed uh, back to Sophia Town. And Interestingly, Huddleston also befriended Tambo in this period, and in the 80s I was fortunate to meet him and Huddleston, and I was struck by their um, quiet dignity, which could disarm even the most pathologic racist, and by their unshakable resolve for freedom. And so, like the doctor, both Tambo and Huddleston were very much organisational men. And there are other interesting Sophia Town connections in the book. Um, if you look, you'll find them. One is the uh, there was an ANC Swaziland branch that was established there in 1930 and King Sabuza II would come visiting and of course Kuma uh, would visit him there. Uh, there's even more on this ANC Swazi connection in our new book on Ubuntu Batu from Vitz in September. There were visits from uh, Islanda Robeson, wife of the great singer, anti-racist and, and communist Paul Robeson uh, in 1935. And he drives all the way down to Bloemfontein, picks her up and brings her back and hosts her in Sophia Town. And then in 1954, another prominent American anti-racist, George Hauser, um, comes to Sophia Town to meet him. And George told me uh, a few years ago that he was really quite unenthusiastic about the defiance campaign at the time. So, yeah, the Sophia Town dimension is really quite fascinating, and perhaps the good doctor just wasn't cut out for defiance. He tries a little bit in Sophia Town uh, in the mid-50s when the forced removals start, uh, and yet even then he's uh, left behind 
by the masses, if you like, and um, Maggie Kresher has a wonderful account in her uh, autobiography of how Robbie Kresher, her husband, comes in and busts up a meeting of this very sort of middle, ultra middle class ratepayers association and sort of wins back the movement for the ANC. So by the 50s, he'd become pretty tame cat, but he was trying in his own way to fight apartheid. So the Sophia Town thing. Uh, uh, and it's also in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, Dr. Koguma is writing to Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Nandia Zigiwe. So he's, he's starting to opening, open up to these Pan-African influences that are um, driving the politics of the African continent uh, at the time. So he wasn't completely out of touch. And in fact, he's, those letters that you included in the book are, are a wonderful way to uh, bring this remarkable life um, so it's a full circle, and um, I hope that uh, the book is uh, well received, as I know it will in South Africa. I've already seen the uh, uh, book advertised in the Cape Town Book Fair literature. Uh, I think one of the slogans was uh, from Kruma to Zuma. Uh, so that's right. It's an interesting play, and if you type uh, his name into Google, you often get a lot of uh, Zumas back, and we need to sensitize Google, I think, to African language. And perhaps my final comment would be on African language and African uh, text. And any selected works raises problems of canon uh, or canonization of figures. But a fuller published corpus allows for more effective criticism and deeper textual analysis. And certainly, Homer's intellectual output or oeuvre deserves a more accessible uh, repository in fact, when you look at it, African historiography is largely bereft of these sort of oeuvres. Uh, you mentioned in Krumah earlier, uh, there was a brief rush to publish works in the 60s with independence, uh, works of Nkrumah, of Seki Toure in Guinea, later tarnished by political events. Um, and since then, there hasn't been much at all. There was, from the late 60s or after Rivonia, publishers in, uh, in England and India started to publish selections of the works of Mandela, of Tambo, uh, and others. Um, and the Indian example is very interesting with the publication of huge works of Nehru and Gandhi. But we don't have that in, in African history. And so, but to me, it's the height of hypocrisy to deny Africans their own canon when we have a white one, say, starting with Olive Schreiner, Bosman, Smuts, Gordon Mackenzie, etc. Wonderful writers, but so too the poetry of Nonsisi or the journalism of Sol Plaiki and John Dubé, and I might add the medical reform and political writings of, uh, of Alfred Bettini Kuma. So I'm very glad that the Van Riebeck Society has sort of embarked on an admirable African turn to achieve more balance in coverage and embrace African authors and texts. And we've seen recent magisterial volumes from them of slave testimonies, the early Setswana press, and wonderful stuff from Jeff Oakland on Kosa writers. So I think that uh, what we need is more of this. Uh, I mean, just to conclude, um, when I was in Wisconsin last month recording our last two episodes, there was a, um, a sudden intervention from Jan Van Sina, uh, the venerable uh, oral historian of Central Africa who told delegates boldly, um, listen to African voices. So it's um, that's what we're trying to do. And actually, it's not a bad motto for Africa, past and present. Well, thank you very much, Peter, and uh, safe travels. Thank you. A little bit over time, but...